0: Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome back to another episode of our podcast. Today we're excited to have Dr. Ali Ata'i joining us again. For those who don't know, Dr. Ali is a professor at Zaytuna College and he specializes in biblical studies but also has a thorough understanding of comparative religion and that sort of deal. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Ali.
1: Jazakallah khair. Thank you, Brother Ahmad. Good to see you again. You know, uh, pleasure to be on thank you so much
0: no worries no worries dr Hardy. it's always a good time having you on um
1: just like office hours just like
0: office hours <laughs> um I want to begin by apologizing because I haven't uploaded a podcast in a long time um I've just been on vacation I've just had exams so this is the first one that we uh that, we, that we've uploaded and we have a number of other ones that are going to be recorded inshallah So the topic today, which is of interest of of many people, including myself, is looking at the flood of Nuh And many secular historians, um, people use this, whenever they hear of the flood of Noah, they usually critique it um, as something which is unscientific, something which we have no evidence, no references for. But yet when you study this topic in depth, when you study comparative religion, when you study a number of ancient texts. You begin to realize that there's a lot more evidence for this uh, than than what people make uh, see, seem to be. So this will be the subject of our podcast today, inshallah. So, uh, Dr. Ali, I will let you uh, begin the conversation and direct where we want to head.
1: Inshallah, wa sallallahu Um Yeah, it's a very interesting uh, topic. Um, I'm glad that you uh, chose it. Uh, we'll see what we can do with it, inshallah ta'ala. Yeah, so, you know, our, our faith um, in Allah and his messenger, you know, certainly it's not blind faith. I mean, it's not without evidence. Um, some new atheists, they um, they define faith as you know belief without evidence. But, but our faith, our conviction is based upon and and fortified by knowledge, right? Hmm. Um, so that's that's really a uh, really important point uh, to make um, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala he he says to the Prophet sallallahu in the Quran hmm, بصيره, that uh, say that this is um, this is my path I call to it ala basira um, with clear sight and um, many of the exegetes for example um, uh, I believe Ibn Kifir, he said that the meaning of this is with with Burhan, with with evidence mm-hmm. uh, so um, you know we we seek evidence for our for our beliefs there is no blind faith um, so this is a very interesting topic um, and i guess the, the first thing i'll say is that uh the, the, obviously it's 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 a narrative that's that's found in the book of genesis uh as well as the uh quran um and the narratives in genesis in the quran uh seem to indicate that the flood uh, was global uh at least in some way especially the former especially in genesis so okay. this is the
0: bible this is the this is the old testament that you're talking yeah
1: about. yeah so genesis is that's that's a good point the, genesis um is uh the english term it's derived from i believe the greek but in hebrew it's called Bereshif. it's the first book of the Jewish and Christian Bible. This is a book that Jews and Christians uh, have in common. They both believe in the book of Genesis. Of course, they have different ways of interpreting the book, but it's the first book, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those first five books is called the Chumash or the Torah, the Pentateuch, right? So Jews and Christians believe in the book of Genesis and, and the flood narrative is, is told in chapters uh, six through eight, I believe. Um, uh, but i th- i think genesis is is more explicit that it was a global deluge a global okay. flood um so, so, now, so,
0: so does that mean that the flood occurred everywhere in the world or that its implications were everywhere in the world
1: that's a very good point it, it seems um to be the, the former when reading the the book of genesis okay uh i don't necessarily believe that's what the quran is saying um but it's it's possible as well okay and i'll I'll come back to that um because it's a very important point but the first civilizations in the world according to uh secular historians were uh sumerian uh, egyptian um indus in valley chinese mayan greek and persian uh and of course the last one is the greatest civilization no, i'm just joking <laughs> uh, <laughs> but always basically got
0: the, always got the pro-iranian
1: no, 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 Oh, pro-Persian. Uh, always got that uh, in that order. Um, but here's the question. F- from our perspective, like, we're not the people of Noah civilized from a historical standpoint. Why, why mm-hmm. is Sumer or ancient Mesopotamia, why is that the first civilization? So I guess we would have to you know, define the word civilization. What, what makes a people civilized according mm-hmm. to secular historians? according to secular historians, essentially there are five characteristics of civilization. Uh, So they'll say um, it has to have a steady food source. Um, There has to be religious beliefs of some sort. Um, There has to be some sort of technological advancements. Um, Then they say um, the practice of the arts of some sort. And then the last one is writing a a written alphabet. so, as far as historians are concerned, all of these were present uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, and that's why it's called the cradle of civilization.
0: And and uh, what year is ancient Mesopotamia?
1: So here we're lo- like maybe we're looking at like like forty five hundred BCE, something like that. Okay. Yeah. So like like sixty five hundred years ago. Okay. where um, you have the first you know so called cities like Uruk in and Ur and Isin and Lapur. Um, these ancient cities that are within those two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, ancient Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia literally means the land between the two rivers or the land between rivers. Uh, So so from a sacred historical perspective, the perspective of believing Jews, Christians, and Muslims, uh, the society of Noah was indeed a civilized society. Secular historians, however, um, do not have hard evidence of a civilization before Sumer. So this is the difference, okay? Okay. So secular historians do not consider sacred texts as accurate tellers of history unless they are corroborated by something physical, okay? Like historical documents of other civilizations uh, or archeological evidence uh, of some sort. Uh, So this is why, like, if you look at the Exodus narrative in the book of Exodus, um, you know, the hijrah of Bani Israel from Egypt. Yeah. Um, historians don't believe that, um, most of what we're reading in Exodus, they don't believe that most of it is historical, in primarily, terms of
0: like the number of people who made the hijrah, right? Yeah,
1: primarily because the numbers are just way exaggerated, right? So, like in Exodus, it says 600,000 men of fighting age uh, made Exodus. 600,000 men, that's not including the the women and children mm-hmm. um, and then all the animals and things like that. So you're looking at like 2 million people making exodus. So the historians would say, well, somebody would have noticed that another nation, I mean, that's like a third of the population of Egypt mm-hmm. leaving Egypt, they would have left this massive footprint in the Sinai Peninsula and other nations would have noticed that the Egyptians would have probably recorded that. Although sometimes the Egyptians did not record their their um, their defeats. So the, my reading of the Quran is, is that we, that that's not necessarily true of the Quranic narrative. I mean, okay. the Exodus could have been a few hundred people. If you look at the Hijra of the Sahaba, the Prophet and the Sahaba from Mecca to Medina, it was a few hundred people, or a few dozen people even, right? So, so, so here with the Exodus, most secular historians would confirm. Sort of the historical kernel, kind of what's known as a minimalist sort of history. Yeah, Yes, there was this figure. We'd probably named Moses, they say, because Moses is an Egyptian name. And, okay. he, and the Israelites would not give their hero an Egyptian name. You know, it doesn't make sense to do that historically. They'd give their hero a Hebrew name. So the fact that his name is Moses probably means that was his actual name.
2: interesting
1: because it's a bit embarrassing for them that their hero its called the criteria of embarrassment that their hero actually has an egyptian name uh so there probably was a figure named moses uh around the time of the 19th or 18th dynasty in ancient egypt who did lead a small band of 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 slaves um across the sinai
2: okay but but
1: is his
0: name is, is the name moses engraved on any of the hieroglyphs for example
1: no, you don't find the name Moses, but that's again that's something that um, is is a bit common amongst the ancient Egyptians. They usually did not record things that would sort of paint them in a bad light, right? Okay. And they would declare what's known as a damnatio memoriae on on people that they didn't like. For example, there was an Egyptian pharaoh named Akhenaten, yeah, right, who was in the eighteenth um, the eighteenth dynasty. Uh, his 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 uh, his um, birth name was Amenhotep the Fourth, but he became a monotheist, which is very, mm. very interesting. So yeah. he said he said that the Aten, right? So like the sun God is the only God. Maybe he was influenced by um, by Israelite monotheism that was in that region um, a few centuries earlier, if we place the exodus in the in the um, yeah, in the eighteenth uh, dynasty. Uh, so there was an active campaign to completely erase him from history. So like, archaeologists, ah, or,
0: or Moses, which one?
1: Akhenaten. Okay. Akhenaten. I mean, our uh, historians didn't even know about him until like the 19th century. Wow. And this was a Pharaoh of Egypt. He was a Pharaoh. We're not just talking about a leader, uh, of, 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 of a few Israelites, uh, of, you know, that were sort of conscripted to do these, uh, these tasks and in the, in, the in, in and contrary to popular belief the israelites did not build the pyramids the mm-hmm. pyramids way predate uh the israelites um it, it goes back to like the um the the first kingdom like 3000 bce or something like that the israelites even according to the torah they would make the storehouses out of mud brick they didn't work with stone they weren't masons okay um, but that's just a sort of side note uh but here's the thing though is like we don't we don't have to as muslims It seems interesting that the quran sort of avoids these historical problems with biblical narratives Mm -hmm. you know so i I would say the same thing about the flood and i'll come to that point uh uh, in a minute Um, so however this this with respect to the people of noah the the historical sort of general consensus may actually begin to change so so two professors at Columbia uh named william ryan and walter pittman they were both, um, marine ge- geologists actually, they published a book in 1998 and they called it Noah's flood, the new scientific mm. discoveries about the event that changed history. Okay. And this was now, this is now 24 years ago and they contend and they sort of updated things as the years have gone by, but they contend that about between let's say 7,000 between 7600 and 8800 years ago, so somewhere between 6800 BCE and 5600 BCE, they contend that there was a massive flood in the region of the Black Sea, okay, that displaced about 150,000 people.
0: And the Black Sea is where Russia and Turkey is.
1: Exactly, yeah. It flooded, according to them, 39,000 square miles of land it also caused um, a three to six foot global rise in sea levels. So it was catastrophic locally, but also had devastating global effects. Basically, basically, like every coastal region of every country was flooded, if this theory is correct. How did this happen? According to Ryan and Pittman, in the aftermath of the first ice age, there was a period of rapid sort of glacial melting, uh, resulting in a rise uh, in global sea levels. So the Black Sea before this time was a freshwater lake. Okay. Then, when this, when this flood hit, 200 times the flow of Niagara Falls poured into the Black Sea every day uh, from the Bosporus. The Bosporus is also called the Strait of Istanbul. So, this is a strait that separates the Mediterranean Sea from the Black Sea. It acted as a dam of sorts. Okay. And it was totally breached during the flood according to uh this theory of of ryan and pittman and they've been opposed you know there's other scientists who who say that uh other geologists and uh who who oppose them uh but it's 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 an opinion that's worthy of scientific inquiry Mm -hmm. so others would say no it wasn't they they sort of um will will disagree on on the on the sort of catastrophic aspect of this and say no it wasn't a catastrophe it was sort of a gradual inflow of water
2: okay it
0: didn't all happen at once
1: yeah so there's a difference of opinion about that okay but but this was a freshwater lake and it ended up a massive saltwater sea okay and fossils of freshwater animals were actually pulled up the shells of freshwater mussels from the floor of the black sea were pulled up also according to them human artifacts were discovered under 90 meters of water uh so this was this was evidence of human civilization um, and, and
0: you know another interesting thing Dr. Ali is mm, you can correct me if i'm wrong but uh, from what i've read the the ark of nuh salam, also landed at mount judy which is in turkey
1: yeah 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 and it's it's mentioned in the quran and i'll and i'll get to the ayat here uh, okay. in, in a minute it's 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 coming up right now so 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 this was this evidence of human civilization these were you know man made structures that were found um and so the flood destroyed what were apparently uh, the most ancient farming communities. Now, interestingly, you talked about the the Ark of of Noah. Um, the Quran tells us that the waters came from below and above. Okay, mm-hmm. in Surah al-Hud, if people look at the ayat, verse number forty-four. Uh, so, so naturally, with with the breach of the Bosporus, there was water, you know, pouring into the Black Sea community. Uh, the groundwater had had risen, and there was also massive rains apparently. So in Surah Al Hud, in Surah Al Hud, ayah number 44, and it was said, O earth, swallow up your water. Right? Hmm. So, so it was said, O earth, swallow up the water. Um, and O sky, withhold your rain and then it says the flood water receded and the decree was carried out. And the ark rested on Mount Judy. Now Judy is one of the, as you said, one of the, um, it's actually one of the lower mountains of the Ararat system in Asia Minor or modern day Turkey. And it was said, away with the wrongdoing people.
2: Hmm.
1: Ryan was quoted as saying, this is going to rewrite the history of ancient civilizations because it shows unequivocally that the Black Sea took place Uh, that Black Sea flood took place and that the ancient shores of the Black Sea were occupied by humans. Um, I'll just read one reviewer of the text. Uh, This is what they said. They said the authors, they're talking about uh, Pittman and and Ryan, the authors contend that the Black Sea at the time of the alleged flood was a fertile oasis, a cultural magnet where diverse peoples, farmers, animal breeders, artisans, exchanged techniques and possibly genes. They pointed to the sudden appearance in Europe shortly after 5600 BC of outsider tribes, advanced farmers, who the the theory goes, were fleeing the flooded Black Sea region. Other flood refugees in this scenario migrated to Russia's steppes, Anatolia, Mesopotamia, and the Middle East, preserving memory of the catastrophe in mythic and oral traditions later enshrined on clay tablets and ultimately in the Bible. And then they go on. He goes on to say, Ryan and Pittman base their theory partly on radiocarbon dating of marine sediments that they collected in 1993 during a Black Sea ex- expedition, so on and so forth. Now, now, the epic of Gilgamesh, which is a very ancient uh, epic, uh, was discovered in the 19th century um, of the common era. And this text, the Epic of Gilgamesh, has a flood narrative, right?
2: Mm-hmm, a- exactly. A-
1: and it shares several similarities with the biblical narrative. So many historians, uh, many skeptical historians uh, uh, assumed immediately that the Torah, whoever wrote the Torah, simply plagiarized the epics flood narrative. Um, the flood survivor in the epic uh, is called Um However, other historians maintain that there was um, sort of a common or shared oral tradition uh, about a massive flood. And that this explains why both the or, the Torah and the Epic have flood narratives. So there was no direct textual influence, uh, but rather a shared historical memory. And this also explains why many uh, other cultures um, that could not have met, okay, uh, had flood stories like like in, in India, Chinese, Greek, uh, Persian, and Native American, etc. Okay, so perhaps the writers of Genesis. Uh, Chapter six through eight, um, um, around, and, and that's the thing is like the book of Genesis. Actually, I mean, no historian really believes that Moses wrote Genesis. Okay, so the the dominant theory as to who wrote uh, the 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 book of Genesis um, yeah, is the theory of Julius Wellhausen. It's called the documentary hypothesis, and this is still taught uh in in universities even in seminaries okay so when i you know years ago when i was taking classes at the at the jesuit school um our professor uh, who was a catholic priest he taught us the documentary hypothesis which basically says that that um the the modern day torah or the Pentateuch, the five books genesis exodus leviticus numbers deuteronomy um, these five books were actually four separate narratives at one point that were sort of stitched together by a redactor. Interesting. Some, sometime around the fifth century before the common era. So, so Genesis chapter six through eight, um, uh, was probably written around 1000 to 800 uh, BCE. Perhaps the writers of Genesis when they were writing Genesis, um. 1000 BCE to 800 BCE, perhaps they were familiar with the epic, and so they presented uh, the Torah as a corrective of the Sumerian narrative. Uh, so, although there are points of similarity, there are also many points of divergence. Okay. Um, for example, the, the epic, the narrative in the epic is focused on uh, Utnapishtim, like the flood survivor, and his greatness. While in Genesis, uh, the focus is really on God and God's greatness um in other words the, the epic is more sort of um uh anthropo anthropocentric right it's, it's okay it's more sort of centered on humanity while while genesis is more theocentric it's focused on god okay and then and then the quran further corrects the narrative uh when it was revealed to the prophet um in, in the quran um so we would say that the the narrative in the quran is actually a restoration of, of the actual narrative uh, as it mm-hmm. happened in real history, because the Quran is a revelation and the Quran has access to history. It can tell us what happened in the past because the author of the Quran uh, is Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So we see this different iterations, right? And different traditions of the same, basically the same event all throughout the world, right? Which is really interesting.
0: Because you know, what, what's interesting Dr. Ali is, um, you know, we imagine today an event happened. Um, m- we were together, and and, and and something major happened. And then I went home. I told my family. You went home. You told your family. We never saw each other again. And then your fa- and then your family passed into the next generation, and the next generation. Obviously, parts of the story would change, but the fundamental part of the story—the fact that there was a flood that destroyed people that was whether or not it was universal or whether it was just particular in a certain area, that much for sure we can say is without a doubt correct. And we have ample evidence through many uh, religions, through uh, ancient texts, through archeological evidence that whether or not the flood was local or universal, we know that there was a flood that existed.
1: Yeah, exactly. There, There are good historical reasons for believing in this narrative just as there are good historical reasons for believing in an exodus of some sort mm-hmm. um, okay. in in these stories in the these stories in the Quran and it's and it's and it's something that is stressed in the Quran in these are true stories mm-hmm. you know this is not الأولين, right and a lot of you know these sort of uh radical revisionists um nowadays, uh, you know, these mythicists, the people who deny, for example, that Isa ever existed. And now, you know, you have these people saying that the Prophet Sallallahu never I existed. And these people are just, you know, these, um, you know, these extreme skeptics. I mean, this is, this is really an irrational position, right? Uh, but you're absolutely right. And this is why we say the Quran is mutawatir is, uh, in its transmission. Because mm-hmm. the Quran was heard and recited uh, every day by hundreds thousands tens of thousands of people you know mm-hmm. so so fabricating the quran is is basically impossible because the text is just so well known and it's repeated over and over and over again whereas hadith you know some of the hadith are also they've reached to but very few of them that's why people would fabricate hadith because they can even though the prophet wa sallam, was Allah extremely salam. eloquent uh his style could be convincingly mimicked um, and 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 as i said the vast majority of hadith are not are not not mass transmitted so people can be fooled with hadith and that's why we have to verify chains of transmission and things like that Hmm.
2: so Uh,
0: dr ali can you 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 mentioned this word mutawater several times can you explain what
2: it means
1: yeah mutawater basically means something that is mass transmitted multiply attested right to the point where it's just impossible for people to have colluded uh, or conspired um, uh, to, uh, to foister a lie, uh, foist a lie upon the people. It's just something that is taken as factual because groups and groups of people from different regions that have not met are saying basically the same thing, okay? So um, for example, um, you know, Thomas Jefferson was the third president of the United States. This is mutawatir, this is something that is just mass transmitted. Do I know that that actually is true? I don't know, there's no way to know, because we don't have access to the past. But Mm -hmm. people who deny something like this, right? I mean, there are people who deny things like this. And we look at them as being sort of quacks, and rightfully so. Because, you know, if if we're denying things like this, we can deny anything, Mm -hmm. right? um you know caesar augustus was the first roman emperor this is just known right um, um and and so so the, going back to the text of the quran you know we have we have variant readings in the quran and i'm going to talk about this inshallah at length in in the coming um uh, podcast and blogging theology inshallah but uh you know i talk about sort of the guilt the guilt complex of the christian polemicists. And what that means is oftentimes Christians, because uh, their text has been sort of deconstructed by, by Western um, uh, historians Academic. and academics and textual critics, uh, they feel a type of guilt. So what they do is they lash out against the Quran. Interesting. Right? Although try to say, oh, we have problems with our text, but you also have the same problems. You have variant readings as well. We have variant readings, you have variant readings. Mm-hmm. So let's say, for example, Maliki Medin and Maliki Yomadin. Malik and Malik, you know, in Al-Fatiha, even in Al-Fatiha, there's a difference of opinion. Which one of these is correct? And of course, the, diff- the, the difference between Quranic variant readings and, and let's say New Testament variant readings is that Quranic variant readings are part and parcel to the very method of its revelation right mm-hmm. there's a there's a hadith that is there's a tradition in islam that is mutawatir uh, thee, and this is something that even western scholars admit to because it's so ancient and so widespread that the prophet sallallahu said mm-hmm. that the quran was revealed ala sab'ati ahruf that the quran was revealed uh, upon seven modes or with seven types of recitational differences so these variant readings are actually part and parcel of the revelation in other words, they have an origin in the Prophet himself, mm-hmm. right? Whereas the biblical variant readings, these are changes to the text that were made way after, uh, Isa alayhi salam uh, by scribes who were theologically motivated,
2: right? mm.
1: uh, and they have deep theological ramifications. So our our response would be that the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he rep- he recited that ayah both ways. He said Madikhiyomadin and Madikhiyomadin. Okay. Mm. And I would say this is as factual as saying Thomas Jefferson was the third president uh, or Caesar Augustus was the first Roman emperor. Again, people can question these things if they want, but I mean, if you just, if you just do, if you forget about the like, as need, you know, like the chains of transmission, just use logic, right? So like, you know, the five daily prayers were mandated in the eighth year of the Meccan period, right? and mm-hmm. al-fatiha al- has to be recited in every prayer cycle everybody knows this yeah and so, and so the prophet sallam, he mm-hmm. led the sahaba in prayer for 15 years so 15 times 354 days which is the lunar year comes out to 5310 days and I actually did the math on this <laughs> and and three of those daily prayers are audible in their first two cycles fajr maghrib and isha yeah so so they would have heard the fatiha six times a day from the prophet so five thousand three hundred ten days times six recitations a day equals nearly thirty two thousand recitations oh. of al-fatiha the prophet the, the sahaba heard the prophet وسلم, mm-hmm. recite al-fatiha thirty two thousand times over the course of fifteen years and this is not counting you know when they heard it in Salatul al Salatul eid or just mm-hmm. in conversation and lectures yeah. and sermons so did the sahaba really get that wrong was there really a difference of opinion uh, as to whether he said malik or malik did they really sort of transfer this uncertainty to their students this is totally ridiculous he obviously recited it both ways okay so mm-hmm. this is what i mean the quran was a mass transmitted living tradition it was heard and recited and memorized every day since its inception by like dozens hundreds thousands millions billions of people right
0: so you know it's uh, the reason why i wanted to to mention this up is because um too often in today's age when we talk about epistemology when it comes how do we know people resort to empiricism right away that we need a physical document that explains the flood which is which is important and it's an important point of knowledge but it's not the only way to know things and so this concept of mutawatir, which our religion is is largely based on is this notion that you have people living across the world people living for example in spain in North Africa, in Turkey, in India, in Pakistan, in Indonesia, Malaysia, these people have never met, and they're all pious, righteous people, and they're all saying that the Prophet said this statement, and they're using the exact same words. Yeah. That is an evidence to the fact that this, this statement is true. And this is something which is, you know, like, like the idea of testimony. And the reason I mention is because we're gonna get into some of these points with the flood. But the famous instance that some scholars give is, um, you know, most people haven't been to China, Mm
2: -hmm.
0: but how do they know China exists? Well, they'll say, well, I've seen a picture. Well, that you're just basing that on a testimony of somebody who claims to have been to a place called China. Or they will say, I've seen a video of China. Well, how do you know that that video is not actually real? It's based on somebody's testimony. So unless you've been there, If you believe that china exists the reason why you believe it is based on your testimony and which is not any way to doubt it but it's just to show that there are other ways to know knowledge so when we look at comparative religion whether it's islam christianity judaism hinduism which we'll get into or you look at many of these ancient texts um like for instance those who are in vancouver will find this interesting um uh the, the indigenous people of vancouver the chiefs of squamish um, there was once a, a Western man who went to them and he asked them to tell them about their religion. Name, the, the man's name was Charles Hill Tout, T-O-U-T. And as he was speaking to the chiefs of Squamish, um, they told them about their creation story because every civilization, every society that always exists, they need to have a story of where they began and where they're going. And so as he's, Dr. Ali, as he's listening to their conversation, they start telling him about the beginning of their creation story. And when he asked them how they got to these lands, they said, before we got here, there was a major flood that occurred in the world in which almost everybody died, but a handful of people survived. And from there, after then, our people came to this land. Right, you'll find this, uh, I forgot the author's name, but it's called First Nations Book, um, and it's, uh, it's on page seven. Um, so whether or not you know, we, we want to uh, get caught up in the specifics of, oh, but this text said this happened, but this text said this happened, the general consensus is with overwhelming yeah. evidence that the flood did exist.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you'll notice a lot of these secular historians who do take these radical positions, there's something else going on with them. Hmm. You know. Uh, there's something about these religions uh, that really bothers them. You know, there's something about the moral code, if you know oh, what I mean, yeah. that really sort of uh, it, it doesn't sit well with them. So they have an ax to grind. And just like these, you know, these really bitter Christians with this, with the, they have, you know, this, we talked about this guilt complex. They have these huge chips on their shoulders. So mm-hmm. their attitude is basically towards the Muslim. If my book is going down in flames, I'm taking your book down with it right Mm -hmm. um and again the the quran doesn't i don't believe the quran carries the baggage uh that that these that the biblical narratives do because the biblical narrative i mean it's it's so um at times it's 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 so exaggerated in its narratives Mm uh that it sort of it just cancels itself as far as uh as far as history is concerned at least secular history Mm. Uh, but the Qur'an, the way that these narratives are presented in the Qur'an is a way that's more tempered, a way that's more um, um, uh, sort of um, uh, acceptable to this type of uh, um, uh, mindset that looks for things uh, as far as uh, evidence in history. And it's, it's not because the Qur'an is, is, is necessarily changing the story for the sake of that. But it's, in, in, from our perspective, it's actually giving the true account of these stories, mm-hmm. right? So that, that's that's an important uh, point to make that yes, the Quran is a musaddiq. The, the Quran is a confirmer of biblical tradition. And this is something that's mentioned in the Quran, but the Quran is also correcting and revising these traditions, right? Mm-hmm. A corrective of biblical narratives. Um, so- And uh, also Dr. Tradition. Ali, the other
0: thing also of um, about the quran um which i think you've you've told me is that the quran typically doesn't get into the specifics of these stories yeah. right the quran doesn't explain how many people went on the exodus the quran doesn't tell the amount of people that died during the exodus the quran doesn't um yeah. with the topic of noah the quran doesn't say exactly how big it was how many people got on there it explains the the broad overall story Um, Exactly. Because the Quran wants us to take lessons from it. But sometimes, like the story of the cave, for example, with the boys in the cave, the Quran will fix it and will give a specific number. Or with the story of Yusuf Yusuf, in the Quran, right? It will correct it and say, no, it wasn't a fear. It was actually a king. But like overall, on a lot of these things, um, the Quran doesn't get into specifics. And I think for that reason, we don't necessarily need to delve onto the specifics too much, because if it was of important, if it was crucial information for us, then Allah would have explained it to us.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. The the Ibrah, what's known as the Ibrah, which is sort of the transcendental lesson. What's the point of these stories? These are true stories. They're not symbolical stories. Um, They're not not myth uh, in, in that sense. These are true stories. But the most important thing that we take from these stories is the sort of overarching lessons mm. of these stories, right? So there's an axiom in, 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 uh, in, in the, the uh, Quran that says that which means that the, uh, the salient point of these verses in the Quran is due to the generality of the wording and not due to the specificity of its occasion of revelation. In other words, there were ayat revealed to the Prophet sallam, oh, awesome. about a specific event in his life. Okay, uh, that's the immediate ca- occasion of revelation. But that revelation has transhistorical significance. It's not just limited to his time. Okay, uh, so for example, the the um, you know the the sort of archetype of Moses uh, and the Pharaoh. You see these archetypes being played out throughout history. The Pharaonic archetype, the mosaic archetype, the Isawi, like the Jesuit, like the, like the Christic archetype, right? Um, that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi is actually also an, a, a, a Josephine archetype, that he was like Joseph, and this is a way in which, um, in which uh, Allah subhanahu wa taala, um, um, uh, sort of described him in a way that is recognizable. To the Ahlul Kitab, that he parallels the story of Yusuf. When you think about it, and of course, again, the skeptic will say here, "Oh, that's just you know, this is evidence that this is just a a recycled myth, and it's you know, it's borrowing from these from these uh, previous uh, 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 mythologies and sort of repackaging them." Um, And again, they can they can have that opinion. That's that's um, that's that's usually how they go about looking at these texts mm-hmm. with a hermeneutic of suspicion. Uh, but the Quran says something different, you know, that the Quran says they recognize the Prophet wa sallam, like mm-hmm. they recognize one of their own sons. So the mm-hmm. Prophet, wa sallam, when and, and and you know, I don't think people most historians would dispute the fact that the Prophet wa sallam, what made Hijra and then came back to Mecca and conquered Mecca. I mean, uh I think this is something that is just just well known uh in the history of the prophet (laughs) and then when he came into mecca what did he say he said right there's no blemish on you today Mm -hmm. quoting from surah yusuf because it seems like he recognized himself as being this type of josephine archetype Mm. or anti-type so the type and anti-type So you have this sort of um these sort of prophetic markings uh about him In, in mecca he was like uh, Isa, salam. he was like Jesus peace be upon him, uh, where he, his preaching was nonviolent, completely nonviolent, but a principled nonviolence, right. Mm-hmm. Where he take a stand uncompromising with, with, uh, his, uh, theology and morality. And then in Medina, now he's in a position of power. Now he's more mosaic. He's mm-hmm. like Musa and, and there's Jews in, uh, in Medina, right uh um that that recognized that about him uh i mean sahih bukhari tells us that you know jews would come and, and sit in his presence and they would sneeze on purpose uh and it says they were hoping that the prophet would say to them Allah," right may allah have mercy upon you because many of them knew he was a prophet
2: hmm. uh, and the prophet, Subhanallah. Would, Subhanallah. And the prophet wow. would
1: say, he would say to them um uh, may allah guide you uh, and, and and rectify your understanding right because there's no reason for them to reject his prophecy they mm-hmm. came up with all types of excuses and even jews in the medieval period they came up with excuses like he's not he's not a Jew prophecies only for the Jews and so the Quran makes an argument what about Abraham is he Jewish hmm. Abraham who is the first person called prophet in the Torah whom the Jews refer to as Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham. He's a Gentile. He's non-Jewish. One of the greatest prophets to ever live is a mm-hmm. non-Jew. So um, that's that's no excuse. Well, they say he changed, he abrogated parts of the Torah, and you can't do that. Uh, they were medieval rabbis who believed that, yeah, a prophet can, can abrogate certain mitzvot, certain commandments, not the fundamental commandments of the Torah, and the Quran does not abrogate. The fundamental commandments mm-hmm. the torah but certain other things uh that are not fundamental sure there's some of the rap J- rabbi joseph alba we said yeah a prophet uh, a prophet can certainly can certainly do that right um mm-hmm. so uh so this is just a different way of looking at history you know uh, we look at history we recognize you know these sort of markers of prophecy um in the life of the prophet sallallahu uh, whereas the the skeptics will say this is just a recycled myth and now they're applying things to the prophet um uh and they make critical assumptions about the quran uh they, because they've made those assumptions about the bible you know so mm-hmm. they'll say they'll say things like uh the quran must have been written after the prophet sallallahu oh, because uh-huh. because the four gospels were written after isa alayhi this is a a, a major mistake mm-hmm. right but that's what they wanted they even use the same terminology like arthur jeffrey this australian um, orientalist he said the uthmani codex is the textus receptus of islam and the masoretic text of islam and john Wansborough talked about the halakhic and the hagadic exegesis of the, using these biblical mm-hmm. and hebrew terms because they want to graft uh the biblical method upon the quran and it doesn't work the reason it doesn't work is because uh, the quran is a completely different text i mean there are zero manuscripts of the new testament uh, that are extant from the first century okay Mm -hmm. if you ask a christian when did when was the new testament written most christians would say the entire new testament was written in the first century okay um but um there are zero extant manuscripts of any New Testament book uh, from the first century it's just it, it, zero I mean it's, it's not there the, the New Testament is 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 not attested in in any manuscript witnesses uh in, in its first century however we have the entire Quran in seventh century manuscripts
2: hmm. you know
1: so Fun. Like, I talked about John Wandsboro. He was a professor uh, at SOAS in London. And his, his theory decades ago was very popular. His theory was that the Quran was written in the latter half of the eighth century. The Quran was mm-hmm. written in the latter half of the eighth century in Iraq and that the prophet never even existed. Okay, this was his opinion. Okay, and it was very popular at that time. Uh, And Patricia Cronay, right? She was his student. And she's the one who peddled this idea. There's nothing about Mecca. It's probably Petra. And there's still people who peddle this nonsense today, right, this highly radical revisionism. But then uh, they found manuscripts, dozens of manuscripts that are written Mm -hmm. in the seventh century, right? So Wandsboro and, and his entire ilk are just totally falsified historically (laughs) right so the quran and bible are very very different today you'll find historians will say that the gospel of luke maybe was written in the second century maybe the book of acts was written in the second the gospel of john probably written in the second century why do they say this is because there's nothing there's no manuscript of the bible that is extant that's dated to the first century so the quran does not have that problem
0: (laughs) And right. so, so when it comes to the flood, then um, because because the Quran is is very general about it, it explains what exactly happened, but because it doesn't get into the nitty-gritties, it in, it doesn't get into the specifics, whether or not it's universal or particular. Um, yeah. It's very easy for us to affirm it. Um,
1: and yeah, because that's but, not that's not an important point. Yeah, right? that, that's that's sort of missing the picture. So you know? so
0: what. So, I mean, it's a hard question to answer. There are a number of lessons from the story of Nuh, but what's one that that you think kind of really sticks out about uh, the whole flood narrative?
1: Yeah, well, you know, something that a lot of people struggle with nowadays, especially in light of the current zeitgeist, the sort of spirit of this age, is their children you know turning away from the religion
2: mm.
1: you know this is this is very very common you have um you know you have children that are because you know what children are exposed to today i mean it's just uh, it's unbelievable what they have to go through uh in school the curriculum in school public school in social media you know what 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 they actually show on television nowadays like mm-hmm. at these award shows i mean just 20 years ago that would have been you know hardcore pornography considered hardcore pornography it's just on on network television in prime time you know um and uh and and so children today um they struggle mightily with with keeping their faith and a lot of them feel like uh they uh will sort of let their parents down or something if they if they bring these, these, these issues, these shubuhat that they're dealing mm-hmm. with to the forefront. So they keep things to themselves. And then, you know, after some time, just, you know, the faith is sort of just ringed out of them. So, you know, the story of Nuh, his son, right. One of his sons, uh, was not a believer. Right. So, um, and he's a prophet. Nuh alayhi is not just a prophet, he is a Rasul. And some of the ulema say he's the first Rasul. He's the first mm-hmm. one to actually receive a revelation and was ordered to take it to the people, right? And his own son was an unbeliever. So at the end of the day, we just have to do the best we can,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: We can't force anyone to believe in anything. At the end of the day, we leave it in the hands, to, in, in, in with the qadr, of Allah, in the qadr of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? um and so i think that's one of the lessons we can take from the story of nuh salam, is that we have to do the best we can we have to strive especially for the sake of our family our children but at the end of the day this thing is out of our hands mm-hmm. that allah you are not you are not guiding them it is not upon you to guide them but allah guides them Hmm. right um um and then like on the occasion of the death of abu talib right <inaudible> right you cannot guide all whom you love right which is an indication that the prophet loved abu talib of course that was his uncle he raised the prophet but god guides whomever he wills
2: hmm. right
1: Subhanallah. So, the, so there's a certain type of You know comfort we take in the taslim of the qadr there are people who don't believe in qadr and they're just living in the past and they have miserable lives right uh and they and they and they kind of just stop functioning and they have to take drugs all day just to get out of bed and go to work and get to sleep so it's it's part of uh it's part of the blessing of being a muslim that we actually can have taslim, we can have a type of uh, a submission to the qadr of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, right? So that's one of the lessons we can take from it. Also, the fact that Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, He is, you know, He is Rahman Rahim, right? He is Rahim, but He's also Shadid Al Iqab,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? Uh, that uh, Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala is Al Muntaqim right that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has jalali and jamali attributes
0: can you can, can you translate these terms
1: yeah so allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is most merciful he is the most gracious he is the um um he is uh, uh the one who forgives our sins he is ghafur he is the most um uh he's the forgiving um but he's also a severe in punishment right mm. he is the uh, revenger right uh, so there's this sort of dual aspect um, uh, with our theology that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has these jamali, these beautiful qualities, as well as these majestic or qualities of rigor, right? And that's what we learn from the flood narrative. Because on Christianity, you know, the first the first uh, epistle of John says, God is love. God is love, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's that's a hard statement to justify um in light of the flood. That's that's a hard statement to justify in light of you know God putting people into hell for eternity. If God is love, if he's essentially love, as the Quran doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. God is al-wadood, he is loving. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is loving, but he's also shadidul he's also severe in punishment, right? uh so again we we don't we can explain these things with much more coherence uh from our theology whereas in 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 christianity for example it's very hard to talk about god being love right and god and this is this is not even the teaching of the bible but this is sort of sort of uh what you'll find with christian polemics and apologists they'll say god loves everyone even the worst of sinners and things like that that's not the teaching of the bible but the quran Mm -hmm. you know the quran uh, god hates first of all the quran never says in the quran allah subhanahu wa ta'ala never says he hates anybody hmm.
2: right?
1: in he doesn't love the kuffar but he never uses hate but in the bible in the, in the book of psalm chapter 5 the lord abhors hates the bloodthirsty and deceitful man right so that's what it says and so uh this idea that that you know um that god is love which is a new testament theology it's very hard to reconcile that with old testament stories especially ones like the flood uh or even this whole idea of of hell the existence of hell we don't have that baggage again right because we know that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we know that when we study theology allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has these attributes of rigor and attributes of, 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 of majesty and attributes of, of beauty and mercy.
0: Hmm. SubhanAllah. Um, the last thing I wanted to ask you, Dr. Ali, now that we've gotten the biblical and Quranic narrative, um, and this is obviously purely theoretical. We don't need to get into this topic, but it's just an interest of mine, is where exactly, what, where, what people did Nuh salam, go to? Um, so there was this article that I, that I read, and the author was arguing that Noah's Ark was actually sent to the subcontinent. Um, and some of the evidence that the individual cited is that the flood narrative plays a quite central role within Hinduism. So, for mm. instance, we have Hindu texts such as we have the Purana, we had the we have the Bhagavad Gita. They talk about the flood and how it destroys the world. It's it's quite detailed. Yeah. Um, yeah. They have this. They have the argument that there is this character who you can explain more about, named Manu, and they believe that Manu is Nuhahaley Salam. Um, that their calendars for begin with, from what I've read, the, their calendars begin with this flood narrative. Um, with the similarly, the Hindu calendar begins with the epoch of the flood, and it's something they constantly yeah. reference. And there was this hadith. I don't know if it's authentic or not, but the author used it. In which it said that on Qiyamah, on the day of judgment, um, the people of Nuh Salam are, they don't recognize who their prophet is. They don't recognize who was sent to them. Um, whether it said something that you know they would they wouldn't. Allah would say say to them, irrespective of the hadith, irrespective of the hadith. What I find quite fascinating is, we have no. We, we don't know the people that Nuh a.s. was sent to and there's only one major world religion in which you cannot trace the origins back to and or to one specific person to say this is the, in Buddhism you can say Buddha in uh, Christianity you can say okay you know is uh, Isa a.s. and all the other prophets we have our prophets um, Confucianism you have Confucius but in Hinduism they have these characters but they don't really have their prophet like the main founder and so Mm -hmm. i just think i just think it was interesting just looking at the parallels between the two
1: yeah it's very interesting it's very very fascinating you know the quran says Mm -hmm. that we we raised amongst every people uh, a messenger right um so yeah conceivably um you know ancient india received prophets ancient china uh received prophets uh maybe ancient uh, greece allahu alam um again i would say that um so who, who are the people of allahu alam. i don't know but it, it it does seem again like there's this shared historical memory
2: mm.
1: of some flood that happened in the world uh that had um global implications right uh because you do find this in in you're right in, in hindu texts and buddhist mm-hmm. texts you find it obviously in judeo-christian texts in the in the quran and in, in in many different uh, civilizations across the world uh you you find this this story so there, there has to be something to that
2: mm-hmm, exactly right?
1: so simply dismissing these things as mythology or something that um you know something that is just um pure fantasy or asatir as mm-hmm. the As the quran says quoting the detractors of the quran these are just sort of fairy tales tales of the ancients they're not they're not true um that doesn't make sense to me to do that something definitely happened Mm -hmm. right um so yeah i mean um i don't know who it was i think it might have been um one of the enlightenment philosophers he um who you know who's not a scholar of religion obviously but he said something like there's apparently etymological similarities between, um, the names of certain patriarchs, um, and, and, uh, Hindu deities like Brahma, mm. Abraham, and Sarah and Sarasvati. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, uh what is it? Yokshan and Krishna. So, uh, there, there's probably nothing there, but I think, I think his point was that, that um it's possible that these these stories these stories of the patriarchs in the judeo christian islamic tradition of ibrahim and of sarah um and um and ismail that these stories at some point did reach india um uh, and that maybe some of these hindu texts um, were influenced
2: um, Mm.
1: by these by these stories not not necessarily influenced by the pentateuch or the torah but the actual sort of oral tradition of these things actually happening before the torah or pentateuch was even written that it traveled into india and then the indians are receiving these traditions and then over time they sort of appropriated the names of these peoples and developed their own type of uh, uh sacred narratives
0: so you you know you know what's actually interesting is we um there was a Mughal prince named uh, Prince Muhammad Dara Shuko, um, who was the brother of Aurangzeb, and he was a scholar of Islam and Hinduism. He knew he studied Hinduism with the Hindu scholars, and he wrote his famous book *Majma al-Bahrain*, the meeting of the two seas. And the two seas he referenced was Islam and Hinduism. And when he analyzed, and there's a number of similarities, and the whole book is just on the similarities between the two religions. It's been translated into English. But one of the interesting things he mentions there is, he said, if you look at the Brahman gods, I mean the the Hindu gods of Brahman, um, mm-hmm. Shiva and Vishnu. Mm-hmm. These, and you can correct me, these are the gods of destruction of life, and
1: yeah, so Brahma creation, yeah, and then Vishnu of preservation Vishen. and Shiva of destruction,
0: destruction. And what he does is he says, these are very similar to the three angels of Jibreel, Israfil, and Mikael. Because one of them, uh, I think, uh, Israfil is the destroyer. Um, Mikael, I I probably should have revised this. Um, But he he explains how those three angels fit those three there in Hinduism, which was quite interesting.
1: Yeah. um, I mean, um, Abu Rayhan al-Biruni was a famous mm-hmm. m- muslim probably the founder of the discipline of comparative religion uh he wrote a book famous book Hind*, the, the annals of india uh, i got it right here MashaAllah. yeah and he he says that uh, at its theological core hinduism is a, is a monotheistic religion um but uh and then he explains this sort of what's known as a two-tiered model of religion which is something that david hume also uh, wrote about And it's this idea that uh, people that are not philosophically sort of adept um, and have problems with, you know, sort of abstract ideas, they need stories, they need narratives, Mm. they need to place their love in something physical, like a statue or an idol or something like that. Uh, And so the masses, because they um, because they did not have the ability to think in, in the abstract, uh, they, uh, proliferated this type of idolatry from a, an essential, uh, monotheistic core, right. Uh, which is a very interesting idea. So in other words, Hinduism in its, in its essential teaching believes in one God and that God is Brahman, right? Brahman, uh, which has a dual etymology. It means to breathe. It also means to be great. So it's like the great breath of existence but over time people began and and you know you can imagine like Brahmin philosophers or hindu philosophers um talking about different aspects or attributes of brahman as creating and destroying and sustaining
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: brahman the Khalik, you know the brahman you know the the rub and things like that uh and, and then over time uh the general masses um uh basically deviating and this is the word that albiruni he calls it the arabic word inhiraf a type of deviation from tohid, where they started to um basically um turn those attributes into gods into gods exactly they would um anthropomorphize uh these attributes of god uh and so for the sake of sort of um um uh facilitating the understandings of the of the laity but then mm-hmm. over time people started to think well these are separate gods exactly and now this pantheon of gods arises in the hindu con in the hindu uh, consciousness whereas at its theological core and origin it was just brahman
2: mm-hmm. right
1: and this um, is
0: also i mean you can correct me also but this is also if you read the philosophical books of hinduism um such as the bhagavad gita the puranas they really indicate one one god
1: yeah no yeah brahman is god right it, there's one god so you know it hinduism became a polytheistic religion um and some some theologians they don't like the term polytheism with respect to hinduism they'd rather call it polymorphic polymorphic monotheism and this idea that sort of god takes on different forms but it's but it's still god this is not you know it's it's still problematic obviously mm-hmm. um because um you know through the passage of time you do have this in this deviation uh from tohid, uh and this has happened over hundreds and hundreds of years and this can happen quite quickly actually because we know i mean the, the, the origins of, of hinduism as you stated uh, they're very murky but we know that isa a.s. was a prophet there's no doubt about that mm-hmm. it's mentioned in the Quran. Uh, and but by the time we get the gospels matthew mark luke and john written in 70 80 90 and a hundred, uh, you have you know a, a breach of Tawheed. These four books are not teaching Tawheed, You mm-hmm. know, um, that's 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 my opinion, at least, uh, that that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, written, you know, Mark at least written uh, you know 40 years after Isa salam is 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 presenting Isa a. as a divine being. I don't believe that Mark is saying that Jesus is the God. But he's definitely a divine son Mm -hmm. of God. I think this the text actually presents him as a as a sort of a lesser deity. This is in the sort of uh, with the sort Mm -hmm. of backdrop of a of a of a of a Greek metaphysic.
0: But you you know, Doctor Ali, the best example for me about deviation from religion comes with the story of Musa alayhi salam when he goes to the mountain to meet Allah for Mm -hmm. forty days. I mean, I I really think about this. You imagine here you have one of the greatest messengers ever. Mm. And he's with his people. And they've seen him. And they've seen the flood. They've seen the miracle he's done. They know without a doubt he is a prophet. But he goes for 40 days. And by the time he comes back, they're worshipping a golden calf. Yeah. And and the crazy thing is, Dr. Ali, is they still had a prophet. Which was Harun, a.s., with mm-hmm. them. Just just within forty days, they were able to turn that quickly back into polytheists. Subhanallah. That that's all it takes.
1: Yeah, and um, yeah, and like you know, this is um, again going back to our sort of current situation in the world, where the the strange and unorthodox and the very the very very ajib and is now becoming the normal.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is a prophecy, you know, you know, inna bada'a kama bada'a. Uh, mm-hmm. that this deen started Gharib, it started strange and then it became sort of normative right um, and then it's going to return to be strange uh once again so glad tidings to the strangers mm-hmm. um you know so um and um and so yeah nowadays you have Muslims that believe in very strange things um mm-hmm. that still identifies Muslim um you know they you have Muslims that I mean I don't want to get into specifics uh but you can imagine some of the opinions that some of our muslim so-called leaders mm-hmm. hold about certain issues um that are clearly antithetical to our tradition to our mm-hmm. morality to our ethics to our theology uh and they'll justify it in certain ways and the young people I mean it's just um it's 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 becoming a total circus mm-hmm. uh they 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 have a lot of problems you know Um, trying to determine what is what is Islam even, like what is this, what is this religion. So now the ulama they talk about, you know, making da'wah to Muslims. Whereas before, Mm -hmm. you don't make dawah to Muslims, you make da'wah to non-Muslims. You give nasiha to Muslims, but now the Aqidah of of people who identify as Muslim is so out of whack, Mm -hmm. right? Is so unrecognizable, um, is so strange that um, that um, you know, that they they actually require a type of dawa mm-hmm. to bring them back into, back into the mm-hmm. into the uh, into the tradition. And there's another word that they don't like is tradition and, and normative, and all of these are sort of you know microaggressions. Uh, <laughs> you know, they, they trigger these sort of reactions in, in 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 certain people. But but that's our that's our religion, right?
0: You know, Dr. Ali, just to just to close off, I want to reiterate a point that you began the podcast with, which is this notion that Islam is a rational religion. It's a rational faith and that we have proofs for why we believe in things. Mm -hmm. And if a person is struggling with a topic, the answer is not that Islam um, does not have an answer for it, but more so you haven't found the answer for it. But Islam has it. And so something like the flood something which is not that big of an issue um is one that some people some muslims do deny because of their insistence that the only way to understand reality is according to what the leading secular scientists historians archaeologists believe and so this was an attempt to show this was one example of addressing a topic but any other topic we have whether it's proving the existence of god which you've done a podcast on, we have evidence for it. Whether it's affirming the prophecy of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, we have miracles and we have evidence for it. When it comes to proving the, the fact that the Quran is a revelation from Allah, we have evidence for it. We are an evidence-based religion. It yeah. is not ir- irrational to believe in Islam, or rather it is irrational not to believe in Islam.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um... You know uh the great universities of of um of uh western civilization they all started off most of them started off as as seminaries right you know Mm. harvard Harvard and yale and you know um of course in in the muslim world uh because belief in god was an absolute given everybody believed in god Mm -hmm. Uh, to not believe in god Right. This was seen as irrational. This was seen as something that is just um, uh, an extreme uh, position that um, that uh, um, is just basically something that um, you know, kind of crazy people uh, uh, ascribe to. Um, the greatest minds who ever lived, um, they recognized. Um, you know, a, a, whatever you want to call it, a higher power or a transcendent reality. Uh, this is absolutely fundamental, you know? So one of the diseases of our age is this idea of material reductionism, uh, that, you know, which is what, if you can't see it, you can't smell it, it doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Um, and a lot of Muslims, unfortunately, falling into this, uh, this type of, mm-hmm. um, are falling for this type of po- polemic, uh, and, uh, really this anti-traditional, anti-religious uh, polemic, where religion is painted as, as irrational, as misogynistic and, you know, uh, homophobic and, you know, transphobic and all these types of things that they, all these types of buzzwords and and Muslims of the academy, at least in Western academy, they don't want to be labeled these things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's going to be fight or flight, you know, and you know, kids today—they have a lot of stress. They have to deal with a lot of things. They don't—they don't want to fight. They just kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they let these things kind of simmer, and then eventually, it sort of—it works on them, and um, and without recourse to to sound scholarship, because you know, you know, n- none of these issues, you know, you know, it's like, um, it's like a a a, um, a Muslim scholar recently, he said he misspoke and he said that you know there are there 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 are there are you know that our our narrative has has issues has um, holes right. that, yeah that that western academics uh, are poking now uh, that we're not equipped to to handle um, i don't think that's true at all i think we have i think our narrative is sound i think our narrative i mean there's nothing that anyone can say that you know our 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 theologians and our philosophers, and uh, our in our in our classical exegetes, they haven't thought of these things before. Of course, they've thought mm-hmm. of these things. We just have to find them, and we have to we have to learn them. You know? mm-hmm.
2: so
1: that's uh, there's nothing new being presented. Mm-hmm. You
2: know?
0: Exactly, exactly. The idea, all of these topics that I mentioned of proving the existence of God, proving the prophecy of the Prophet Wasallam, proving the Quran is a miracle um p- proving the quran is preserved all of these answers came at least eight nine hundred years ago and yeah i mean the, the
1: fact the fact that the quran you know there's a challenge issued in the quran produce a chapter like unto the quran produce a recital like in the like unto the quran and this was you know the first challenge is in mecca uh and, and today the quran is universally um, uh, uh, accepted by, by secular historians as being the greatest masterpiece in the Arabic language, whether you believe or think that there's something comparable to it or not, that fact by itself is, is a reason to just pause for a second and say, okay, a man in Mecca, uh, an unlettered man in Mecca in the seventh century is saying that this book Is going to be basically the the sui generis of the Arabic language, right? The magnum opus of the Arabic language, and it is today. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you believe that whatever you know, Al Mutanabbi or whoever poet or Al Maari, whatever this poet's name was, who tried to mimic the Quran, uh, people haven't even heard of these people, which means that it's nowhere near uh, (laughs) the the. uh, It's not near the it's not on par with the quran at all uh but just that fact that the quran to this day is is the is the the masterpiece in the arabic language that should give you a moment to just pause Hmm. and say there's something about this book
2: Mm -hmm.
1: you know there's something about it right you might not you might not say well it's a a revelation but there's something about it Mm -hmm. that's just one piece of evidence just one piece of the puzzle here
0: and, and like the, you know, just today in Arabic class, the idea that perhaps the only reason why the Arabic language was preserved is because of the Quran. And that the yeah. rules for Arabic today, the the source that they quote as to why this is the ruling in, in Nahu and grammar and logic is the source is the Quran. So they always return yeah. back to this. They don't return back to, you know, pre Islamic Arabia with other texts. No, the, the, it's the Quran. So yeah. all of Arabic they have to turn back yeah. to this book.
1: Yeah and uh, also exactly and, and one of the one of the deleteles of the Nabuwa, what one of the fruits um, of, is... of prophecy mm-hmm. of the prophet, he was the greatest monotheist who ever lived, the most successful monotheist okay mm-hmm. who ever lived. So the Jews, I mean a rabbi once told me he said we cannot just ignore him because the, 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 the Jewish claim to fame is Tawheed. You know, uh-huh. their, cla- their claim to fame is we brought Tawheed to the world, right? But the greatest monotheist by far, no one's even in the same ballpark. The greatest monotheist, the most successful monotheist of all time was the prophet of oh, oh, So he oh, told oh. me, we just can't ignore it. We have to say something. So some of our rabbis said, okay, he was a goel. Goel in Hebrew means like a mujaddid, like he like he's a renewer of, of Tawheed. So he was a kind of a prophetic figure. And others said that he was a he was a prophet. He's a Nabi Emmet. He was a true prophet. But he's only sent to the Gentiles, not to the Jews. So in other words, mm-hmm. 99% of the... They, so there's something there. There's something about him. You can't just mm-hmm. ignore him. You can't just dismiss the Quran. You can't just dismiss the Prophet. The Jews dismiss the Christian Jesus. And they can do that. Because the Christian Jesus, I'm not talking about the real Jesus. The Christian Jesus does not teach Tawheed okay he commits blasphemy in the new testament uh he makes false prophecies in the new testament so the jews can just ignore him put him aside completely and say uh, you know because that's a big that's a deal breaker
2: uh-huh. right
1: if a, if a prophet is claiming prophecy and he's not teaching Tawheed, that's a deal breaker we just put him aside but they can't do that with the prophet uh-huh. they, I mean, they, you know,
0: they
1: they call us they don't
0: they don't call us monotheists they call us radical monotheists
1: yeah, exactly a <laughs> radical type of monotheism yeah 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 I mean this is a you know um this is you know and and, and like medieval medieval rabbis you know they, they they would you know you know try to use a, any type of excuse not to believe in the universality of the message of the prophet awesome. but all of these reasons they they collapse you know none of them are strong there's an interesting book written by a, a former uh, uh, medieval uh, rabbi named uh, Shamuel ben Yehuda al-Maghribi. It's called Ifhamul yahud the Confounding of the Jews, where he actually goes through all of these excuses that that the rabbis give as to why they're not going to believe and obey the Prophet sallallahu uh, and he just completely takes them apart one by one. There's no reason not to believe in him. Mm-hmm. You know, when your claim to fame is Tawheed, uh, uh, and you're disbelieving in the greatest Mawahid who ever lived, then there's a there's a problem with with, with, with your judgment.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. SubhanAllah. So um, just on a closing note, I just want to end off with the hadith um, from our beloved Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam who said that a time will come when holding on to one's religion will be like holding on to a hot coal. And within Islamic history, you will see that Muslims have always had many problems they had to combat. But the ideological combat, which is alive and thriving today, is the biggest threat for us uh, holding on to our faith. But yeah. the important principle to always remember is our, our religion is based on evidence. It's based on reason. And we go wherever the evidence goes. If, the evidence, uh, if all of the evidence in totality proves that Islam is true, we follow it. And that's what our scholars have said. That's what the great historians and people who've converted to Islam have said. So, um, if you have any final thoughts, Doctor Ali, please share them.
1: Yeah, I would just you know second that thought, um, and say that you know this is this is a this is a a, um, a religion where the pursuit of knowledge is is central. The first word revealed of the Quran is iqra, which means to read. Um, uh, there's many, many ayat in the Quran uh, where we are commanded um, to seek knowledge and to use our intellects, you know, and to to ask the people of knowledge if we don't know some. Right? Are those equal, those who know and those who don't know? So we're constantly uh, uh, commanded by Allah Subhanahu wa Taala to use our intellects, to use reason. Uh, to engage with people to find evidence right the quran commands us to ask the people of the book for evidence for their claims Mm -hmm. where is your proof where is your evidence if you speak the truth um so so people have to keep that in mind okay this is this is a religion of the thinking person this is a religion you know, it's really we're really, and I've said this before. You know, in the past, we're really becoming the last line of defense in all of this this postmodern craziness. Uh, you know, and, um, many of the churches in the world they've let you know the sort of circus through the doors, um, and they're teaching things that are clearly antithetical to biblical tradition. And although a lot of Muslims are falling into this we know that there's always going to be according to the promise of the prophet there's always going to be people that are on the truth on, on the ḥaq, uh who are going to have a difficult time um uh, you know dealing with this kind of dominant zeitgeist so you know life is short my, my parting advice is life is too short to be a sellout you know if you're you know in if you're a teenager or if in your 20s believe me life is going to move so quickly you know before you know it you're going to be 40 years old you're going to be 50 60 years old it moves very very quickly it's not worth you know selling your dean okay because you don't want to deal with you know um, a type of you know um you know people mocking you and things like that because this is what's happening there's there's mustahziun there are a lot of people that are mocking just don't go on the internet i mean you know it's um you know it's people uh uh you know they they go down these internet rabbit holes right yeah and a lot of these people again they have they have personal issues that are behind the scenes we don't know what they're what they're up to what they're doing they misrepresent their religion they present you know like this whole idea of variant readings they'll show like you know a a quran written in in wash next to a quran that's written in uh in in hafs and he'll say look look at the difference here and, uh, you know, the Qur'an is, is there's a difference in the Qur'an, there's a contradiction in the Qur'an and a lot of Muslims because they haven't studied traditional texts, they don't have a solid Islamic education, they think, yeah, my my Imam or this, this da'i lied to me, he told me the Qur'an is exactly the same and no, the Qur'an is a multiformic text and it has been multiformic since the beginning, you know, uh, so these are things we have to know because our enemies are basically weaponizing our tradition against us because they're taking advantage of our ignorance.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. Thank you so much, Dr. Ali. Always a great time. Um, I would recommend everyone to look at some of other of Dr. Ali's talks, especially his talks on blogging theology. Um, and he has referenced the uh, preservation of the Quran um, that uh, throughout, throughout this uh, podcast, but he's going to be doing a formal one which will be coming out on the Blogging Theology YouTube channel soon. So, for everybody interested in that topic, feel free to check it out there. So, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ali.
1: Dr. thanks for having me. Good to see you.
0: Thank you, everybody, for listening. Inshallah, we will see you soon. as alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.